it seemed good to the elders in light of our several weeks discussion in discovery class, Sunday school, back in um, November with regard to the Lord's Supper and the use of wine for us to take this Lord's Day, as we will be observing the Lord's Table, to discuss and to summarize some of what was discussed that day and those, those two days, two or three days, uh, Sundays that we talked about it. And there are so many different ways that one can, can look at what we talked about. We could look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper, we could look in the meaning of the wine, uh, but it, it seemed to me that the best place for us to be is in the 14th chapter of Romans, where we hear the Apostle Paul writing to a congregation in which there were differences of opinion, and more importantly, differences in conscience as to what could and could not be done with a clear conscience. And I think it is vital for the health of not only our body, but all those churches that name the name of Jesus Christ, that we understand the mind of Paul as it reflects the mind of God through Jesus Christ. And this is summarized at the end of chapter 14 of Romans in verses 22 and 23. Hear the word of the Lord. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Let us pray. Our Father, we humbly come before you as your children, as a congregation of believers who desire to do your will and to worship you, not only in spirit and truth, but according to your precepts. We desire not to bring to you anything of our own devising. And we desire that you would show us from your word and to purify us from your word and by your spirit that we might worship you aright that we might bring to you pure hearts and clear consciences according to the measure of faith that you have given us through Jesus Christ, that each man, each woman, each child's conscience might be clear before you, that we might indeed go from this place not only justified as we are through the blood of Jesus Christ, but renewed in the spirit of our minds through this worship. We ask, Father, that you would do this through your word this day that you would wash us with that water of the word, that you would conform our thinking to yours and conform our lives to that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. In our day, sincerity has become the measure of worship. Anything goes as long as it's well-intentioned. As long as the um, ends are good, the means are justified. In our day, we see a lot of things happening in the professing church that, that we look at and um, we wonder, how did that ever come to be? Sincerity is no doubt a critical part of true worship. And I think that needs to be said up front, because this morning we're going to be talking about the regulative principle, 
which is um, one of the major themes of Reformed theology and Reformed teaching, and that we will discuss somewhat in this morning's sermon. But I think we all understand that it is quite possible to worship God according to his precepts and yet with insincere hearts. We understand that the regulative principle itself does not bring us approbation from the Lord. We understand that doing things correctly is not what it's all about. The Israelites did things correctly, and this is what God had to say of their proper worship. He said, bring your worthless offering no longer. It, it, incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure, endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. And then in that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, he says, your hands are covered with blood. Later, after the exile, the children of Israel who had returned to Jerusalem asked the prophet Zechariah whether they should continue to fast as they had been when they were in Babylon. And the Lord's word came to them through Zechariah and asked them this question, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? The Lord knows our hearts. And he knows that even though we may be doing things according to his word, we may not be doing them with sincere hearts. And so on the one hand, it is true that sincerity is not the measure of true worship. But on the other hand, it is also true that sincerity is absolutely critical to true worship. And so there is a combination of things that need, they need to come together in our own hearts as we consider even this day our worship in the Lord's Supper. And the one, on the one hand, we have the fact that that which we do needs to be according to God's precept, that we must not bring before him will worship or strange fire. But on the other hand, sincere hearts are the sin quanon, the without which nothing of true worship. And that seemed to be at the heart of our discussions in Sunday school and discovery class concerning the Lord's Supper and how it should be observed. What is the true measure of worship? It's not sincerity. It's not good intentions. Nor is it proper mechanics, the regulative principle. It seems to me that the essence of true worship is the fear of the Lord. The essence of true worship is understanding that we come before a holy God. And because not only are we finite due to the fact that we are creatures, but in our finiteness we have also had corrupted minds because of our sin. And so it is the height of folly for fallen man to think that he could understand what would please a holy God. And so the fear of the Lord is the measure of true worship. And the regulative principle, when rightly considered, is the natural outworking of that fear. The sincerity of our worship comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, comes from the intercession of our Lord who gave himself up for us. We love because he first loved us. And that is where the sincerity of our worship must find its source. 
but the mechanics of our worship. That flows from our fear of the Lord. Our understanding, as God said to Aaron, right after the death of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who perhaps very sincerely, we are not told otherwise, brought strange fire before the Lord. And the fire went out from the altar and consumed them. And God told Moses that Aaron was not to mourn, because he said, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored. When we read the scriptures, we understand that our God is an awesome God. He dwells in eternity. He dwells where no man can see and live, in unapproachable light, with eyes too pure to look upon evil. And so when we understand in in whatever measure we can the concept of holiness, we understand that we, we we don't bring our own offering before the Lord. We don't come up with our own thing and say, here, Lord, bless this. Even if it may bring a lot of people in through our doors, even if it may result in many people professing faith in Jesus Christ, even if it may make people within the body feel good about themselves or or even empower for the coming week, all of these things seem to be noble goals. But unless they are according to the precept of God, they are nothing more than will worship and they are an abomination to the Lord. And so that is the the essence of the regulative principle. It's not the foundation of our worship. The foundation of our worship is the fear of the Lord and the grace of God through Jesus Christ that allows us to come through that veil into his presence. That's the foundation of our worship. But how we worship is according to the regulative principle, which states that that which is not commanded in Scripture is forbidden. We are not to innovate. We are not to change. We are not to take things out or put things in. But rather, to the best of our ability, according to the wisdom that God grants the church, we are to do before Him what He requires of us. No more and no less. But in all of our discussions of the regulative principle, one thing has consistently come out, and that is, in the particulars, it is not very definitive. We're not told, for example, how many hymns to sing. We're not told which hymns to sing. We're not told how long the sermon should be. And certainly, we all have an opinion on that. There are many things that we're not told. We're not told how often we should gather, but we are told we are, should, we are to gather. We are not told how long the sermon should be, but we are told we are to be, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the preaching of the word of God, by which foolishness God has ordained men shall be saved. We are told that we are to gather in prayer. We're told we are gather in worship, and we're told we are to observe those sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. Those things we are told. We're not told how often to observe the Lord's Supper. And so we see in the church those who observe it once a year, those who observe it weekly, and those like our own body that observe it once a month. So even within the regulative principle, 
There is a, a great deal of variability and a great deal of disagreement. And it's upon that disagreement that I want to talk this morning. Because how we handle those disagreements, I think, betrays our health as a body of believers and has betrayed the lack of health within the general body of Christ on the earth. My last Sunday evening message, I mentioned one of the Latin phrases from the Reformation. You're, you're all, I'm sure, familiar with the solas, the five solas of the Reformation. But there was also a phrase with regard to the reforming of the church. And that phrase essentially can be boiled down to two Latin words, semper reformanda. The English translation of the phrase is that a reforming church is always, or a reformed church is always reforming. Now that is difficult in any generation. Two things prevent the church in any age from attaining perfection in worship. And believe me, I don't believe that any age of the church has attained perfection in worship. I don't believe there's any prior age of the church to which we should look and imitate slavishly, that we should become like they were, or that any church in the future should look to our age and become as we are. Because in any age we have our own corruption of mind, no one generation gets it completely right. But in any age, we have the culture in which we live. And culture is something that is much more easily recognized in the past tense than it is in the present. Because we are providentially placed in this age, just such a time as this, we have been raised up in the mentality, even within the church, that defines this age which means there are many things about our worship that are not right, but we don't even see. They will be seen by others, maybe our children, maybe our grandchildren. It is our responsibility under the, the, the banner of Semper Reformanda to continually be comparing what we do in the church with the scriptures. Because much of what we do in our worship, comes to us from our ancestors, which came to them within a context and a culture that we can now see that they could not see. And that really is what we have been saying about the Lord's Supper in its modern manifestation in the American church. We inherit baggage, but we also bequeath it. Our forefathers did not know what they were giving us, and we do not know what we are bequeathing to our children. But in each generation, it is the Word of God that remains constant, and that is our light, and that is where we see, as we continually seek, that the Lord would reform His church according to His Word. He allows us to see those things that are not according to his desire. This principle of always reforming, however, does not mean constant change. 
It doesn't mean that we change for change's sake. It does not mean that we seek out novelties or innovations to make our worship more vibrant or more culturally relevant or more exciting for the younger generation. It also doesn't mean that we divide the body according to culture. So that at 8 o'clock we have the country service, and at 9 o'clock we have the contemporary service, and at 10 o'clock we have the traditional service. That, that is not what Semper Reformanda means. It does not mean constant change, but it means continued critique. We never settle on our lees. We never rest on our laurels. We never allow ourselves to think that we have arrived at perfection. We know what we're doing, and therefore... We won't change. We should never say we do this because we have always done it. That, that is a very unreformed statement. In fact, we should always be able to say one of two things. We do this because according to the wisdom God has granted us in his word, this is where it says we should do this. Or we should say, we do this, I don't know why. Let's look at that. I don't know why we do this. We've just always done it. And that's not good enough. Now fortunately, by God's grace, he does not challenge us in everything that we do all the time. But he does challenge us. And we do things and we have done things over the years at Fellowship Bible Church. We have done them year after year. And we have done them with a clear conscience. Until a time came when that question arose, why do we do this? And in continuing to do it and yet critiquing it through the word, we have come to the realization that we have no biblical warrant for doing it and can no longer do it with a clear conscience. At that point, we stop doing it. And over the years, sadly, that has caused division in the body. And that has caused separation within the body. And in the history of church, that has called, caused denominations. And I believe one of the reasons is because we have not fully come to grips with Romans 14. And we, especially within the Reformed camp, tend to think that everything that matters, matters absolutely. And if we believe this is how it should be done, this is how everyone should do it. And we stand behind the regulative principle and we say God is not pleased with your worship because you're not doing it this way. And that is not what Paul says in Romans 14. Because there's something else that is, comes into play here and that is the conscience of each and every believer. Because if one of you or I do anything in the worship of God apart from faith, it is sin. And if any elder or pastor or pope of the church requires of anyone to do anything apart from faith, he is encouraging and even compelling that believer to sin. That is the stumbling of which Paul speaks in Romans 14. And that is the issue that we are faced as we consider the mechanics of the Lord's Supper. 
Not everyone is at the same point at the same time. Nor is it the will of God that everyone should be. During our evening service, we talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the measure of faith, the measure of grace that God has given through Christ to each believer. And that very concept of measure teaches us that that measure is not the same to everyone in all time. Each of us, hopefully, who have been in the Lord for any period of time, have a greater measure of faith than we did when we first began. And among us, there are those who have a greater measure of faith and those who have less. And it is that measure of faith which manifests itself in our conscience by which we are judged, not by the regulative principle. I think we all accept, and I, I'm gleaning this from the discussion in Sunday school, but I think we all accept the, the principle of the regulative principle. It was even said that if it could be established that this is the way it is to be done, then this is the way it must be done. And that is true. But we all have to realize that establishing that is the sticky wicket. Establishing from the Bible exactly and definitively that this is the way it ought to be done is not that easy to do in every case. And so what happens is that the church, and within the church, two extremes are taken. On the one hand, there are those that I've already mentioned who come to their own conclusion as to how it's to be done and lay down the law for everyone. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, it just doesn't matter. It's not critical. It's not part of, our, it's not part of the gospel. It's not, it's not all that important, so we'll just not talk about it. It's not important. And, and those, frankly, are the way the conversation tends to go. And it is the way some of the conversation went during our Sunday school. Because that's the way we think. We tend to think in extremes. It's either so important that we must do it, and everyone must do it, or it's not important, so don't worry about it. There are some things that are non-negotiable. And we know what they are. They are the heart and soul of the gospel. They are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They are things upon which, if we disagree, we cannot call ourselves brethren. But we also recognize that there are many things that are not in that category. And yet, they are very important. They are important because they speak to the conscience of every believer. In other words, baptism. We believe that it is important as a sacrament of the church. And yet within evangelical Christianity, there are some pretty significant disagreements as to the mode and the candidate of baptism. We, for example, believe that only those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ are eligible for baptism, and we believe that the proper biblical mode is immersion. But do we believe that all Presbyterians and Anglicans and Lutherans are unbelievers? No. But is that the same as saying that it doesn't really matter? No. 
it does really matter. We just recognize that there is disagreement in the church. And to our best ability, we accommodate that disagreement, recognizing that in some cases, two cannot walk together because they do not agree, and therefore we do have denominations. And so in that respect, because of our fallenness, because of our lack of maturity and perfection in Christ, denominations are an inevitable occurrence, which is not to say that all denominations are right, but that they exist because our understanding in this life is limited. The leadership of the church. Should the church be governed by a board of, or a board of elders or trustees? Should there be a pastoral staff? Should there be a, a priest or a bishop? Should there be a pope? Or just elders? Well, obviously, we have disagreements within the church as to its polity. But do we say that those churches who do not have the same form of government as our church are therefore outside the pale of Christ and doomed to hell? I hope not. But on the other hand, do we say, well, it doesn't really matter. To each his own. No, we, we don't say that either. This goes to ecclesiastical titles. You may have noticed, if you haven't been in our church for a long time, or when you first came to our church, that none of the elders are reverends. Even though we are ordained, and we do have the prerequisite requirements of being a reverend, that is a title that we generally despise. We do not have reserved parking for the reverend. Reverend always reminds me of RPMs, you know. I just... We don't wear clerical robes, and this was actually a really big deal during the Reformation in England as to whether or not the, the Protestant preachers would wear clerical robes. And there was those who would not preach wearing a clerical robe until John Calvin said, get over it. <laughs> Wear the robe. You know, this, this type of thing is in the church all the time. And Romans 14 remains critical. We should read it frequently because it talks about the nature of our body, the nature of every other church of Jesus Christ in the world today, in the world a hundred years ago, or in the world a hundred years from now. And that is there will be disagreements and so we come to discuss the Lord's Supper, its form related to its function. And we admit that as with baptism, we do not fully understand its function. We do not fully understand what baptism does or what the Lord's Supper means. We say in our body that the Lord's Supper is more than merely a memorial. It's more than just a remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ. There is a communion in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual reality that we don't fully comprehend, but we accept. There is also a communion with one another. And so we're taught, especially in 1 Corinthians, that there ought not be any stumbling block among us when we come for communion. But we have within our body, and we have had in our body for many years, those who believe that the introduction of grape juice into the mechanics of the Lord's Supper was an innovation in the church that came about 
due to a social and cultural situation that was very unique to our country in the 19th century, and that is the temperance movement. Now, I was very gratified by the discussion in Sunday school that there was no anger. There was no dissension within the discussion. And there were no unbiblical arguments. For instance, and, and I know many of you have probably heard of this. I've heard it within my own family. No one asserted that the wine spoken of in the Bible was non-alcoholic. That is a, a prevalent teaching in the American church today. That the wine of which we read at Cana was not alcoholic. That, that's silly. And I think we recognize that when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, and when it was observed in the early church, and really in every generation up until the 19th century, it was observed with wine. And so those who advocate the use of wine in the Lord's Supper are asked, what does it matter? And oftentimes the best we can say is, I don't know why it matters, it just does to me. But we live in a time when almost all of us, if we have been in the church any length of time, if we've grown up in the church, we've grown up within the culture where alcohol is viewed as an essential evil. And according to your conscience, you cannot partake of wine in faith. And Paul says, that's fine. That is fine. Just as it is fine for those who can, it is fine for those who can't. Because God in his providence has put us in this age and not in another one and not in a different one. And so what he says in this passage the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Not the conviction of your pastor, not the conviction of your father or your mother, but the conviction in your own heart. Because whether you partake of the Lord's Supper in wine or grape juice doesn't matter as much as your conscience. And while we observe the Lord's Supper according to the regulative principle, Yet, if we violate our conscience, we are sinning. And so though the elders believe that the regulative principle would establish from biblical example, if nothing else, that the Lord's Supper is to be observed with unleavened bread and with wine, yet we also believe that the regulative principle is a guide and it's a goal but it's not a cudgel nor does it constitute chains to bind the conscience. The conscience belongs to God not to any man or not to any other man. It belongs to God. In a sense Paul says about the conscience in Romans chapter 2 that it is our direct communication with God. It is not infallible, nor is it incapable of being educated 
as it should be. But no other man, regardless of rank or title or ordination, has the right over any man's conscience, any woman's conscience. As for children, no other man takes the place of a parent in relationship to the behavior and practice of that child. And the elders have maintained this for the last, I don't know, 25 years, as long as I've been here. And so when it comes down to it, we have members of our body for whom partaking of the Lord's Supper in anything other than wine has been a struggle for a long, long time. We have others in our body for whom partaking in wine would be a violation of their conscience. In the spirit of Romans chapter 14, we have a split tray, which I firmly believe Paul advocated in Rome. Because he said, and we do not know the exact context of what they were saying, but it involved meat and it involved wine. It involved those within the body who were able to eat and drink of both and those who for their conscience sake could not. And Paul said, fine. Let those who eat, eat unto the Lord. Let those who do not eat, not eat unto the Lord. Let those who drink, drink unto the Lord. Those who do not drink, not drink unto the Lord. But the bottom line is, have your faith as your own conviction before God, continually challenging your own mind according to Scripture, and allowing your own conscience to be washed, to be taught, to be matured by the Holy Spirit of God through God's Word. But at any given time, as Paul says to the Philippians, according to the standard to which you have attained, so also live. And if anything you have a difference of opinion, God will teach you also in this. He is the one who directs our conscience. But the unity of the body in the bond of peace, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, flows out of Paul's teaching in Romans 14, where he says, on the one hand, whatever is not from faith is sin, and therefore we cannot compel the conscience of any man. But on the other hand, he says, unto his master he will stand or fall, and stand he will, for the Lord will make him stand. And so this morning we commune with our Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood, whose body was broken on the cross for us, we do not understand the fullness of that sacrifice. We do not understand the depths of this sacrament that we observe and its symbolism. We do not understand what it accomplishes within our minds and within our hearts. But I think we can understand that we have been brought together as a body in the name of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. And so we make accommodation, not compromise. We accommodate the conscience of each, and we offer the Lord's Supper 
with a split tray. I'd like to ask if Tim and Ariel would help with the elements this morning. And when the tray is passed, the outer ring of the tray is wine. Within the outer ring is grape juice.